the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 648 for Sunday, March 12th, 2017. Uh, greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found, pretty much anything that is related to all the stuff that we do here because we're Apple users. And we share your tips and questions and cool stuff found, and we try to answer your questions. We try to provide a little bit of color commentary for uh, perhaps some of your tips, with the goal being all of us, me included, learning at least four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include GoDaddy at GoDaddy.com, where coupon code MGG30 gets you three zero, that's 30% off of your uh, new orders. So check that out. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Here in very, very cold on this sunny morning, Durham, New Hampshire, in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Yep, and here, in, uh, <laughs> yep. likewise freezing. There's freezing, and then there's and then there's really cold. It was like eight this morning Fahrenheit when I woke up, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in Fairville, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing, Mister John F. Braun? We've been robbed. What were you robbed of, John? We were all robbed of an hour. Oh, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we were. Well, we weren't really robbed of it. They, we just changed the clocks. Uh, nobody actually stole the hour. We just um, we just agreed that it's later now. I mean, reluctantly. It's silly that we continue to do this, but uh, but you know, whatever. It's all good. Yeah, we're there now. If you're hearing this show, I can guarantee you that you made it through. Uh, the U.S. transition to daylight saving time, even if you're not in the U.S., you've made it. So congratulations. Put that on your success list. It's, hey, you got to pat yourself on the back for something because no one else is going to do it, except right now I'm going to do it. You did it. You rock. Every single one of you, all of you, you accomplished this. And I am proud to know you. Everyone gets a trophy. In this, in this, uh, in this case, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. Hey, all right. We have, uh, we have a bunch of tips to go through. So as fun as this little, whatever this is, uh, is, um, we got some stuff to go through. So number one, I actually got the first two I'm going to take John because they came up in a backbeat media staff meeting this week. We all wind up with multiple Google accounts Right. Um, and it can get a little weird when you need like if somebody invites you to a document as one, but you're logged in as the other and you don't want to have to log out as the other uh, because then you lose access to your email or whatever other documents you had and all that stuff. So you have a couple of options. Number one is you can open up another browser, but there's only, um, you know, there's a limited number of, of browsers that exist on on the Mac and you might not want to have. You know, if you're, let's say you're a Safari user, you might not want to have Firefox logged into a different Google account than Safari or, or Chrome or whatever. Um, the answer, my friends, even though the wind is blowing, that's not the answer. The answer is open up a private browsing window. So in Safari, that's file new private browsing window. Chrome and, and Firefox both have this option. 
The idea behind this private browsing window is that it is effectively a sandbox. It inherits none of your cookies or settings. Uh, I should say none of your cookies or logins or anything from your other browser windows. It does contain your settings. So your fonts and all that stuff remain the same. Um, and it doesn't share anything outside of that. So it doesn't share your history or, or any of the cookies that it gets while it's while that window's open and set. And with that private browsing window open, you can open, you can log into a new Google session that doesn't isn't isn't affected by what you're already logged in as in your main browsing windows and also doesn't impact them at all. It is a sandbox. So private browsing to do your uh, to log into an alternative Google account. And this would be true of anything. If you've got, you know, alternative iCloud accounts, right? Whatever you need to log into. I use it not only for the, the reason I just mentioned, but also if I'm helping someone troubleshoot and I need to log into their Google or iCloud or whatever account, I just open up a private browsing window. And this way it's not being impacted by or impacting whatever else I'm doing on that computer. So there's a little tip to start the show. Pretty good, right, John? Yeah, it's probably good to go through. So they have several settings, and I think I did this a while ago. Uh, I, I believe they will. Well, private browsing, um, as, as the name implies, means that they're not going to track or uh, archive what you've done. Right. And that, I think I did that at one point, because I think by default they will, which... Well, private browsing only happens when you open a private window. Oh, I know. Yes. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a global setting for everything. Right. But I think in general, um, by default, Google will uh, track what you do when you interact with a lot of their uh, their sites. Oh, and, so and you, Google would still be tracking you for this. Mm -hmm. Don't don't at all think that that's not going to happen. They know your IP address. They know that you're logging in. Obviously, they know the time of day. Um, so Google will know that you were logged in to your account from that thing. They just won't necessarily have cookies from your other sessions to relate to it. But if they can relate it via IP and they do, then definitely they know who you are. Yeah. So it's not private from that standpoint. It's more just private from your computer's standpoint. It, it, I like to think of it as a sandbox. That's a better way than thinking of it as actually private. So. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing that everybody may want to do, if you do have a Google account or accounts, would be when you click on, so I'm doing that right now. So, you know, I went to Google and they show in the upper right that I've logged in under one of my Google accounts and you click on my account and then you have a whole bunch of settings on the left, mm -hmm. sign in and security, personal info on privacy. So one that relates to what I was suggesting is they have, um, you know, manage your Google activity and they say, well, you know, we we want to improve your user experience, which, yeah, sure, sure you do. Well, no, they, they do, I think. <laughs> Sometimes you may, want to, you may want to clamp down on some of the data that, uh, that you share with mm -hmm. them. Yeah, others. it's true. Well, it's, and again, you're, all, you're still sharing that data with Google. You're just telling them not to track you by it, right? They already, they have it. You're just asking them in, in an official way, to ignore it whether they do or not is a whole other story so just throw that out there all right and then another tip um you know i am 
uh, I use generally the, the I use iMacs that have fairly large screens, but um, but I also use laptops from time to time. And regardless of what screen I'm on, I have found that I much prefer having my dock on the left than I do at the bottom. And where I came to this realization was uh, I like to have my dock appearing all the time, but uh, I value uh, vertical screen real estate more than I do horizontal, meaning I like to have windows that can scroll as, as far top to bottom as is possible. And there have been times where I would, you know, choose to hide the dock or whatever so that I could expand a window all the way top to bottom. But of course, what happens then is as you float to the bottom of that window, you float your mouse to the bottom of that window, the dock appears because it's like, oh, you must want me. So here I am. Uh, and that's obviously annoying in those uh, instances. And then also, I don't like the popping of the, the, the dock. I just like it there all the time because I like to see what apps I have running and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, so I have moved my dock to my to the left hand side of all of my screens. And I did this a couple of years ago. But uh, but it just came up in conversation again this week with the backbeat guys. And uh, and and it I find it really handy. It It is far less obtrusive on the left than it is on the bottom for my daily usage. And I wanted to share that tip. Um, and I'm being asked in, in, our, in our chat room at MacGeekGab.com slash stream if I am right handed. I act like a right handed person. Yes. Um, I've been told that I might be left handed. I'm mostly ambidextrous. Uh, but uh, but yes, I generally use my mouse on the right hand. Although, as I said recently, I, I sometimes use it on my left hand. But uh, but yes, I am I am right handed for those of you um, for the purposes of this question, almost certainly right handed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bottom of the screen uh, dock type of person. Have you ever so, tried it on the left or on the right? Nah. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't, right. doesn't thrill me. And you may ask yourself, where do I set this? And I'm going to tell you: system preferences, dock, position on screen, left, bottom, right. I think there's a way you can do it with the cursor, but I uh, I yeah. fumble fingered it. I I can't. Uh, I, right. I thought you could just drag it to the right or left, but I, I don't seem to be able to pull it off. Um, right click <laughs> on the little separator bar in the dock between your there apps and your documents, go. and then you can okay. choose position on screen, left, bottom, right. There we go. Yeah. Sweet. Yep. Yeah, it's fun stuff. I like uh, I like being able to customize things. So at least there's that. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to your tips. We'll go to Drewski and Drewski says this is uh, probably old hat for some, but uh, it's new and very helpful to me, helpful to me, despite six plus years in Macland. Hopefully it is new and helpful to others. The most recent trick or tip I found is regarding icons on the Mac desktop. My mid 2011 iMac is booting from a Thunderbolted SSD while using the stock internal hard drive for storage. In addition, I have a long list of other external drives, swappable drives for docking station and remote cloud drives in use totaling nine terabytes or more. I have 10 drive icons on my desktop at the moment, says Drewski. While it is easy enough to change the name of all of these drives to keep them sorted, the desktop icons are limited to a couple different graphics, which don't help to visually separate them for me. Since I am often unsure of which drives are mounted at any particular time, I wanted to have a better visual representation on screen so I wouldn't have to think about it too much. Start by finding the graphic or picture that you'd like to use for an icon. There are thousands available for free just by browsing online for Mac icons, for example, that look similar to the icons that we're all accustomed to. However, we're not limited to that. 
as any graphic that preview can open is fair game for icon use. Double click uh, on the icon or preferred, preferred image and open it in preview. Crop the picture if need be. With the desired area highlighted, hit Command C to copy that image to the clipboard. Next, right click on the icon you'd like to replace, the generic icon for an external drive, for example. Choose Get Info, and in the upper left hand corner of the info window, click once on the current icon and it will get a blue outline showing that it's selected. Now simply hit Command V to paste the image in as the new icon and voila, the icon changes and you have a much better idea of what that icon represents. All of my drive icons now look like the actual drive itself, no more confusing them. Change the icon back to the macOS original, just click once on that icon in the Get Info window and hit Delete. Thanks, Drewski. That's, uh, that's good advice, man. I like it. That's, uh, it is good to have, if you keep a clean desktop and you are someone that, uh, that relies on that for your, your daily kind of workflow with your Mac, then yeah, I can totally see where having the drive icon separated that way would make a big difference. So thanks, man. That's good. We've got, uh, Kevin Collins in the chat room posting drive icons, both for Lassie and for other world computing. So we will put those in the, uh, in the show notes as well, so that if you have OWC or Lassie drives, um, you can actually find them yourself. Now, how do they, <clears throat> cause I've had a lot of times when I have either of my NAS drives mounted, they have a icon that's specific to that type of drive. Usually like the Drobo will show, you know, the, icon with the the lights and all that so yeah. i can visually and i don't know if they're stored in the os or they bundle it with the device or maybe it's part of the installer when you install their software that's a good question i don't know how drobo does that um but they could also bury it on the the share itself and just share it as an icon file i mean that's where that mm -hmm. stuff is stored it's stored i think don't quote me on this but i think it's at like the root of the drive in dot icon if i'm not mistaken Ah, okay. Right. Okay. I, I think I, I forget exactly where it is, but I know that it's, it's something like that where, where you can just go and, and, um, and it, that's where it lives. Um, I can't remember at this point. It's not dot icon, but I don't know. I'll, I'll find it at some point. Yeah, and the other thing that has me concerned is, uh, the yellow lights were flashing on my Drobo as I was looking at it. Yellow lights mean your disk is getting full and you need to replace it soon. Is that right? Uh, I think it means it's doing repair. Oh, it, it's oh, uh, that's bad. I may, I may be getting a red light soon. Yeah, that's <laughs> I bad. I got some old drives in there. And the other thing I noticed is when I ran their software is they said, hey, there's an update. They're still updating their software even for, for this. Absolutely. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're very focused on the on the consumer market, uh, which is. Yeah, which is good. That's good. Cool. All right, moving on with tips to Ken here. And Ken writes, I know Ken wrote something here. Here's what he writes. He says, um, my three terabyte Maxland NAS is shown in the, uh, oh, it, 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 I'm starting in the middle of his comment because his comment starts in the middle. Uh, we were talking last week in show 647 that uh, about how to, both mount a drive, a network drive like this at startup and also to keep it mounted uh, after it wakes for, after your computer wakes from sleep or goes through some action that causes the drive to be unmounted. 
And uh, and I talked about using control plane and and login items to do that. Many of you can being uh, one of them, but certainly not the only one uh, suggested that keyboard maestro might be a better solution for this. And he's Ken and, and all the rest of you are totally right. Um, when you create a keyboard maestro macro, uh, I would use the same kind of thing, the same kind of automator uh, action to mount the drive and then just save that as a as an application. So that's what you're going to have keyboard maestro run. But you can have keyboard maestro run things via uh, a series of triggers. One of those triggers can be at login. So, yep, you want to use that one. And then the other one would be uh, adding a um, a trigger for when this volume is unmounted. So whatever volume or volumes you have mounting inside your Apple script uh, or, or automator action, rather, although you could do it with an Apple script as well, uh, you would put in that list so that if one of those volumes becomes unmounted, well, then keyboard maestro says, Oh, got it. And it goes and mounts it and you're good to go. So very cool stuff to be able to use a uh, keyboard maestro for that. So thank you very much, Ken, for sharing that. He has a couple of other tips, John, but I want to, uh, I want to, I want to make sure we go through this one first. Anything, uh, anything that's worth mentioning here with regards to keyboard maestro mounting drives. Continue. Continue. Okay. Uh, Ken then moves onward and says, uh, also in show 647, I know the topic was for Max uh, when you talked about printers and sharing and all of that. He says, and not for iOS devices, but I've been using Printopia for years and it works great. There may be some other option from Apple already built into macOS, but I don't know. And indeed, he's right. Printopia is something, again, many, many, many of you mentioned to solve wireless printing to any printer that's out there, not just printers that support AirPrint. Um, so you can share any printer, new or old, with your iPad or iPhone. And Printopia is the uh, app to do that. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, good stuff, John. Yeah, I was fiddling with uh, wireless printing the other day with my iPhone. Okay. Yeah. Did I you use Printopia one. or no? No, I actually found one. So I, uh, you know, being an inquisitive type of guy here, I was at my uh, local library and they have Wi-Fi. Yeah. And I ran this uh, utility called Flame, which will show you uh, the uh, Bonjour or, you know, Zero Configuration Devices saying, hi, I'm here. And there was something called something, something, something printer. I'm like, really? And so I went to a web page in Safari and then uh, brought up, I think, the, uh, you know, the up arrow share icon and said print. And then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, here's a network printer. You want to print to it? It was an HP something or other. Huh. So I guess it had a air print in it built yeah. into it. Right, right, right. But it's kind of fun because I didn't know it was available until, uh, you know, until I ran this utility. Um, then I asked them, I, I, I don't know if you have to pay or, well, I guess sure. it's a public library, so I guess it's a public printer. Yeah, but they might still charge you to pay. I mean, they charge you to make copies and stuff, so. Yeah. Cool. Very, very cool. All right. Uh, Brian has a tip, a couple of, I think, I don't think it was the last show, but a couple of shows ago, we were talking about uh, someone that didn't want to add Wi-Fi to his mother's house, but needed to do something because she was using up all of his shared cell data with her, uh, with her iPad. And, uh, and it was more that he didn't want to add uh, Comcast to her house, but 
Brian writes, he says, I found a cell option that may help the family whose mother needs a cell hotspot for her iPad. T-Mobile has a standalone version of the MiFi service for 10 bucks a month with 28 gigs of data and no contract. This may help if the family is locked into a pre-existing cell plan that doesn't support unlimited data. If you exceed 28 gigs, they just throttle it back, but they don't bill you for additional usage. Offloading her usage onto the separate plan also gives them better usage info to justify future Wi-Fi avenues. So there you go. Good, uh, good to remember. And, and lots of the cell carriers now have uh, these unlimited plans. Some are better than others. I think T-Mobile's is actually one of the better ones if you have coverage for them. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's worth, worth considering. Yeah, it's good stuff. What's that, John? Well, that's the caveat. I've, I've heard more than one person uh, shake their fist at them uh, regarding their coverage versus mm. other uh, other carriers. Yeah, it just yeah, depends on where you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think actually where you are, I think T-Mobile would be fine. I think it's I think it's good for for most of those areas. So, Rich writes. Um, he sent us a, a link to an article that uh, that Custom PC Review did called uh, or about the new macbook pro with touch bar wi-fi right or touch bar sorry i'm reading the headline while i'm talking here the new macbook pro with touch bar and it points out that this has a three by three radio in it not just a two by two like the old ones now we talked about this with regards to routers but as a quick refresher three by three means that the macbook pro has three antennas in it for both transmitting and receiving Wi-Fi data and that it is able to bond them together as a pair, as a set of three, meaning you can effectively theoretically triple your bandwidth. As we found with routers that are especially the three by three and really the four by four routers, what we found is that uh, more than giving you this uh, wider bandwidth these three by three radios and, and again, four by four radios on top of that give you much better range because even if you're connecting to, let's say your MacBook Pro is three by three, but your router is only two by two. And most routers out there are only two by two, right? Like the Eros and all the, all the mesh stuff are all two by two. Um, but you get to pick the best two streams from your laptop to connect to the two streams of the router. And this will make things not only faster, but longer range. And they've, they've done a lot of research and we'll link to the article, but even with the Eero, which again is only two by two, uh, this MacBook pro gets 166 megabits per second. Whereas a two by two radio from a client in exactly the same spot gets 78 megabits per second. So same router, both are connecting with two streams, but the one that's got the third stream as an option gets better throughput on the two that it's able to choose. And that works in both directions. Um, you know, the Synology uh, RT2600AC has a, is a four stream router. And, and, uh, and again, even if it's only connecting to, you know, your, your phone or your, your older MacBook at one or two streams, you get to pick the best of four, either the best one of four or the best two of four, or even the best three of four. And you'll get much better throughput out of it. So, so the number of streams matters, but not generally not in the way that router manufacturers are, uh, tell you. It's like, oh yeah, you know, multiply it, and you get this massive bandwidth. It's like, yeah, you're not going to get that, but you will get better range, and that's why we get like the great range we do out of that Synology, that new four x four Synology router, because of that four x four radio that's in there. So, 
Anyway, just wanted to share this article. We'll put a link in the show notes. And of course, we put it in the chat room for you folks out there. So don't, don't cross the streams. Don't please. cross the streams. That's right. Yeah. Actually, I'll have a report shortly. Uh, I ordered a 802.11ac board for my MacBook, uh, MacBook Pro. And so. how, many, how many streams does it have? Well, as far as I know, it's three. So I Is saw that the right? take apart it's instructions. A, it's a three by three. Yeah, it's the same as the uh, the board. So yeah, so uh, what's in the MacBook Pro 2012 that I have is a is a 802.11n board. Yeah, and there are three antennas on it, and then there's a fourth antenna for the Bluetooth. So they combine them on that board. But then there's a company that makes a replacement that has a 802.11ac chipset instead. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that's a two by two radio that you have currently. Nah, it'll be better, I think. No, it'll do AC. No, I, that, that's what I'm, yeah. I'm just curious whether it's going to be three or, or two, but I'm pretty sure what you've got is two by two. Um, and there's, and there's actually four, four antennas, right? Because mm -hmm. two going out and two coming in and one of them is shared with Bluetooth, right? I don't think, uh, ch check the take apart on this. As far as I can see, there's three antennas for the Wi-Fi and one for the Bluetooth. Huh? iFixit has a take apart for this. Yeah, yeah. Replace that board. Yeah. And this is basically doing that, except you're putting you're in a board with a chipset that has yeah. the AC instead of the end. Yeah, I'm, so, uh, I'm pretty sure Bluetooth shares an antenna with one of the oh, 2.4 okay. um, streams, I think. But but uh, I could be wrong on that. Yeah. So we'll see. But yeah. I figured, yeah, why not? I've upgraded everything else in here. And, yeah. uh, and it is possible from this company called Quicker Check. They offer upgrade boards for uh, several computers. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, you know, I got a, uh, a, a new device this week, John. My uh, venerable 14-year-old Apple Cinema HD display, 23-inch Lucite frame. Yep. The really, really old one. Uh, it finally died recently. I think I mentioned that on the show and uh, it didn't owe me anything. Obviously at 14 years old, it did quite well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. One of the backlights, the backlight across the top went, went dead. Um, so, you know, fine. It was time. No problem. So while I was on vacation, I started uh, one night, just started researching things and decided that uh, monoprice had great prices on uh, 27 inch monitors. And I wasn't going to get like a, you know, a 4K or UHD or, you know, what we'll call quote unquote retina monitor because uh, because there's it's you know, it's a secondary screen for my 27 inch iMac in the office. Yes, my iMac is retina, but uh, but I'd lived with a non retina screen the whole time that I've had that that iMac. And it's been fine as a, you know, as a secondary screen. I just put like some chat windows and stuff over there just to have stuff. Uh, and I do really like it. So, uh so I was going to order it and monoprice had, you know, this, whatever, uh, regular resolution, uh, non 4k 20, I think it was a 28 inch screen, but it would fit in my area, uh, for two ninety nine. So I was going to order it. And then I thought, well, let's see what the 4k version would cost me. And I looked and they were having a special, the, the 4k version was two ninety seven. So I figured, well, <laughs> I can save $2. That's fine. So I did. And I'll put a link to the monitor that I bought in the, in the show notes. I think it's back up to 349, but still uh, a great, great screen. And I think now it's got free shipping and mine, mine didn't. I had to pay about 20 bucks for shipping. So I got this thing and I plugged it in. Now, this monitor 
that uh, that I got has a display of um, oh crap, I can't remember. It's like thirty one thirty one eighty four by. I'll pull it up. I know what it is. I have it somewhere. Nah, it's it's something. Thir- it's thirty one eighty four. No, thirty eight forty by twenty one sixty is the default resolution of this monitor at uh, at twenty eight inches. So I plug it in, and the Mac. I can see, you know, the monitor comes up and shows the resolution that it's negotiated with the Mac 3840 by 2160. And everything on it is super tiny. Like text is really small. And I'm like, oh, crap. I didn't think about this. Like, oh, man. Like now I'm going to have to run it in lower resolution mode just to get text the size I want. And I started thinking, wait a minute, my iMac is screen is way denser than this. My iMac screen runs over 5,000. They call it 5K, right? So it's, you know, 5,000 pixels across. And yet I get the the vision that I want because it treats it like we call it what what Apple calls a retina screen with very high pixel density. And uh and that gives you that crisp, you know, uh, crisp text at uh, you know, at at what we'll call a smaller resolution because my iMac runs at 2560 by 1440. Except it doesn't. It runs twice that, right? It runs at what fifty one twenty or whatever it is um, by twenty eight eighty. It just pixel doubles everything. So I went into the, the display system preference, and as we discussed on this show recently, John, because this screen and Apple uh, Mac OS is smart enough to recognize that I'm running a four K screen that would benefit from pixel doubling. And so instead of giving me a list of resolutions to choose from, it gives me that five, um, five size list that's really represented as from ranging from larger text on the, on the left side to more space on the right side. And my screen was set all the way over to the right at more space. And so I floated to the left and I found one that says 2560 by 1440, but it doesn't say just that it says looks like 2560 by 1440. And so I set it and all my text got bigger, but I checked the monitor because the monitor has its own little menu and the monitor said it was still running at 3840 by 2160. So the Mac is smart enough to send this um, pixel higher pixel density image to the monitor at still at the monitor's full resolution. And sure enough, now I get that, you know, what we'll call the retina effect of, uh, of, you know, print like text on the screen and everything that you would want, but uh, still taking advantage of the monitor's full resolution, but not doing it to make all your text really, really small. And, uh, and I was pretty stoked about that. I had, I had no idea that Mac OS was smart enough to do this. Um, frankly, I, I, I suppose I assumed it was when I bought the screen just because I didn't really think about it. But uh, in talking to some people, I've had people say, oh, yeah, I bought a 4K monitor, but the text was too small. So I sent it back and got a lower resolution one. It was like, oh, dude, you could have saved it, um, which, which is pretty cool. Now, if you're in the displays preference pane and this can be on any retina screen, so external, certainly. But also, if you've got a retina iMac or a retina MacBook Pro, uh, anything that, that does retina option, click on the on where it says scaled. And, uh, and when you click on, and when you option click on scaled, you'll get a list of all of the effective resolutions that you can display. In addition to that, at the bottom of that list, again, only on retina capable screens, 
you'll get a little checkbox that says show low resolution modes. If you check that box, you will see resolutions displayed with and without low resolution printed in parentheses. The ones that say low resolution will actually change the bit depth sent from the computer to the screen. The rest of them will just do this pixel, you know, increase of the pixel density to effectively get you to that resolution without actually changing the resolution of the screen. So you get all the benefits, which is pretty cool. Right, John? I like it. Same. I love this new screen. It's awesome. Yeah. And if you hold down option and you click on and you keep clicking on scale, it'll bounce between. Yes, it will short, bounce between. That's know. right. Yep. Yeah. Mine right now is 1920 by 1080, which is the max resolution of both this machine and the screen. So that's good. Right. Yeah. So you're you you need to make and you probably don't get the checkbox for show res, low resolution modes. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah. So you you need to not only have a screen that would support this, but you need to have a Mac that can drive a screen at that, you know, uh, 3840 by 2160 resolution. And uh, not all Macs can. There is um, there is a list. There are some Macs that can do it at 30 Hertz. From what I've read, you don't want to do that. If you don't have to, you want to do it at 60 Hertz. Ooh, yeah. You don't want to do 30. Won't well, it flicker? Yeah. Look the, that great. The, the, people say when you start moving, excuse me, moving windows around, it starts to get a little, a little janky, but, um, janky. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay. the, you know, yeah. The technical term. That is the technical term. Right. Right. But, uh, but yeah, the uh, let's see the MacBook Pro 2013 and later Mac Pro late 2013 and, and later, although there's nothing later. iMac, any 27 inch iMac from 2013 and later, a 24 late 2014 Mac mini, an early 2015 MacBook Air and the MacBook early 2015 and later can all drive a 4K slash UHD display or a 5K display, whatever you want to call that, that they can drive it. Yeah. Uh, at 60 hertz the rest you can look apple's got a list we'll put the list in the in the show notes of course because that that that's good so, yeah yeah and actually i'm way off here yeah no this thing can do way more resolution but uh at the time this screen right right it was better than the last one i had yeah apparently this machine can do 3840 by 2160 yeah that's it 60 hertz okay yeah so you can right so you can you can drive a 4k screen with that so you could drive one of these mono price screens that i got sweet i know I know it's pretty good. And, you know, I mean, I don't even want to talk about what the retail price on that uh, cinema display that I was replacing was that was 23 inches and like what, 1600 by 1200 or something. But uh, maybe even less than that. I forget. But uh, at 300 bucks, man, 4K screen, that's pretty good for especially if you can drive it retina. So, <laughs> it's oh, yeah. Crazy. Well, I had the same. I had a 19 inch Samsung, which in the day, I think it's like a decade old now. I think it cost me like 750 which was a good price back then for, for that screen. Yeah. And, and this one here is bigger, high resolution. And I think it was like 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. But yeah, I'm impressed with this mono price screen. Um, it's pretty good. I'm, I'm like I said, it's uh, it, the, the glass on it is good. The, the display in it is good. The, the, uh, the speakers in it are awful. I mean, like, well. like remarkably awful. Like, not just like, you know, they're like they're the speakers in a display, but these are like, they are so bad. But, you know, it, thankfully, they don't take up any room and you wouldn't even know that there were speakers in there unless you like looked at the manual and you probably are going to use different speakers anyway. So don't worry about it. 
It's it, it's not a negative for me on the monitor. It's just remarkably awful. But what's cool is I'm connecting to the monitor via it has what it's got HDMI and DVI and I think VGA, but it's also got a display port connector, full size display port, not mini display port. And that's how I'm connecting to it. I'm connecting display port uh, on the monitor to mini display port on my Mac. Thankfully, monitor price is great with cables. So I also bought a cable from them for like six bucks or whatever. And, uh, and you can send audio over display port. So it, it shows up as a display port option in, you know, in your sound uh, preferences, but I don't recommend using it. Like, I, I mean, I couldn't even stand it for like 10 seconds of a conference call, but you know, but again, don't buy the screen for that. You didn't buy the screen for that. And neither did I. So it's good. Yes. All right, John, what else do we have here? We've got, uh, we've got three tips from last show to continue with. And then, uh, and then we've got our UPS follow-up to do. So what I want to do first though, is I want to talk about our sponsor, which is GoDaddy at GoDaddy.com slash. Uh, actually there's no slash. It's just GoDaddy.com. They make, they make it easy, but when you're going to check out, go to, uh, the coupon code or promo code section and make sure you enter in coupon code MGG 30, because that is going to get you 30% off on all new products. Now, what kind of new products can you get? Well, I've always gotten my domains from GoDaddy. Well, that's not true. I initially got my domains from, you know, Network Solutions or Internic because that was the only place in the world that you could do it. But once they opened it up to people, to, you know, uh, third parties that could sell domains, I started using GoDaddy and I haven't looked back. I'm really impressed with GoDaddy. Uh, they... Uh, not only do they make it easy to buy domains, they also always offer a good coupon code like we're talking about here with MGG30 so you can get a decent little discount. And uh, their domain management, like their DNS management is stellar. Uh, I think because they're so close to the root of everything, I can go make DNS changes there. And I know they say that it'll take potentially 48 hours. Man, in my experience, they come through much, much faster than that, oftentimes immediately. And uh, and you can do all kinds of stuff. It makes it so easy to just manage your DNS right there uh, that you can add exchange email. You can even do hosting with them. Uh, it, they really they kind of they, they they'll do as much as you want them to do for you. So go ahead and check it out. Go to GoDaddy.com. Coupon code MGG30 saves you 30 percent off of all new products and uh, and get your domains there and then you're good to go. Our thanks to GoDaddy for uh, for being a sponsor again here. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure being uh, being reaffiliated with GoDaddy. Good fo- good folks over there and fun to work with. So thanks again. Uh, all right, John. Now let's go and uh, and let's let's see if we can get through some of these tips and maybe even get to some of the questions that we've been asked for this week. So Eric writes. Uh, you guys mentioned using an automator script to unmount a clone drive each time your Mac starts up, which we did. Uh, he says, I'd like to show you an alternative method, and that's using FSTab, which is a um, Unix uh, sort of core component where you can change the nature of a drive. And he linked this to an article that uh, that that gets us there. So thank you, Eric. It, it's a little bit geeky. I got to be honest. But, you know, that's sort of what we oh, do here. Yeah. Um, I, I've used FS tab. In fact, I use it all the time on our, our Linux servers to control exactly this, like how a drive mounts, what parameters it has, all that stuff. I've never used this on OS 10 because 
it, I always worry that, you know, uh, an OS upgrade, I don't know what, what an OS 10 or a Mac OS upgrade is going to do to an FS tab entry. Well, so, so I haven't messed with it, but nobody else seems to have a problem. So, you know, huh? My only concern, now this is interesting, when you mentioned that, so FS being, I believe, file system mm -hmm. table, I think is what that stands for. That's correct, yeah. So, And it's in the ETC directory. And I just looked in my ETC directory on both my machines, Dave. It's kind of interesting because there's a file called fstab.hd. Okay. And if I look what's inside of it, it says this. So I just want to offer a caution for using this method here because it may not, as, as you were implying, but it says, ignore this file. This file does nothing, contains no useful data, and might go away in future releases. Do not depend on this file or its contents. <laughs> so I'll just offer that caution. It seems they're shooing you away from use, using that. But Maybe that's why I've never used that file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though I have seen it in prior versions, but it looks like they changed it because I, I'm almost certain pre-Sierra it, it was used in in some fashion to mount some uh, to do some network mounts. Yeah. So again, um, caution, caution, like like Danger Will Robinson caution. Eh, I think the worst that'll happen is it won't work. <laughs> well, no, I would. Eh. I, I when was this article written? I mean. I mean, I think the worst that can happen is, I mean, if, if the mechanism's not there, it just won't work, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think it'll destroy anything. Right. It'll, in this instance, using it to not have a drive mount, I would say the worst that would happen is if it gets reverted to the default, the drive's simply just going to mount. Um, so that that's not so bad. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it looks like the article is 2014-ish, so... Yeah. Oh, hey, give it a whirl. Just uh, uh, make a backup beforehand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, I, you know, there you go. That's uh, that's how that works. All right. Moving on to uh, listener, John. Uh, in 647, we were talking about forcing, uh, finding ways of forcing mail to ask you to choose an outbound mail account if you use multiple addresses or aliases and you want to make sure you pick the right one. And listener John's suggestion was you can set the outgoing SMTP server to none for your default account. If you do that and don't change the email address before clicking send, it will ask you which server to use, which will then prompt you and you can cancel and go back into the message and change the outbound address. So it's a little warning effectively when it says, I can't, you, what server do you want to use? You know, ah, there's your flag. Go back, change the outbound email address. So that's pretty smart. I like that little workaround. Good stuff. Yeah. Right, John? Good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something. Lastly, in show 647, uh, we were talking about uh, and, and, and lamenting about the lack of a solution for blocking iCloud photo uploads from iOS. And we even said... It could be done with a VPN type service or a pseudo VPN type service that would cause this to be blocked. Sure enough, listener Jay tells us about a service called disconnect.me uh, that has an iOS app. He says the latest version of this app has a premium to premium toolbox in app purchase that lets you specify domains to block. It's like little snitch on iOS. This works the same way as the ad app mentioned in uh, the uh, in our, our uh, chat room here 
in terms of the little pseudo VPN trip trick. The catch is that it's a $9.99 US one-time purchase. Um, but, uh, but there you go. So we'll put a link to disconnect me in the, uh, in the show notes and we can take it from there. So thank you, Jay. I'm glad that, uh, that you found it. This exists. Very, very cool stuff. <laughs> That's what we like here. I like it when, uh, when we have an idea and somebody else has already thought about it. So it's good. Yeah. Good, John. Great. Okay. Now. Let's talk about UPS stuff, because we talked a lot about UPSs a couple of weeks ago, and you folks had a lot to say. UPSs, of course, are uninterruptible power supplies, battery backups for uh, for uh, average terms. Dan has uh, had had this to say. Now, this is Dan. Uh, uh, I think he's over in the UK. Yeah, he says, I'm an electrician over here in the UK, and it's interesting hearing you talk about brownouts. Uh, FYI, a piece of equipment uses a certain amount of power watts, regardless your electricity provider supplies you with a certain number of, with a certain voltage, i.e. volts. You work out the current draw amperes from dividing the watts by the volts with a brownout, the volts drop, which in turn means the amps have to go up. I believe the increase in current is what hurts the electronics. And that makes sense. That's interesting. I never thought about the brownouts causing issues that way. I've certainly seen them cause issues. And my assumption, as I said in the show, was that it was the return to power. But uh, but maybe it's the in the, the the product is then or the, the yeah whatever it is piece of equipment is then drawing more amps mm. and uh, and you know blowing itself out. It makes sense. So regardless, brownouts are bad. But that I I like that. I like the, the the math on that. That's pretty good. What do you think, John? Uh, I mean, I get the math like you do. You yeah, know, there's that basic equation. So, um, huh? I'd have to measure. I'd have to get my uh, meter out and uh, and measure what's happening. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. Uh, be careful if you have a multimeter when you're measuring wall current, because uh, you could hurt yourself. Uh, yeah yeah don't touch the leads with your with your bare hands and especially don't touch the leads with your bare hands with with two separate bare hands because now you're sending that signal across your body that gets even more dangerous right and don't put uh cutlery in there like i believe most of us we did when we were a little kid because it looked like a fun thing to do well seem (laughs) it, it fits doesn't it (laughs) <laughs> kind of, kind of, yeah. <laughs> All right. You can make it fit. <laughs> you can, yeah, exactly. That's the problem. <laughs> All right. Bradley writes, uh, he, he's, uh, wow, this is, there's a lot to be said here, Bradley, but it, it actually, this is really good stuff. Uh, he says, ever since APC was bought by uh, Schneider Electric, their products reliability in Bradley's opinion has fallen and he now doesn't recommend APC. I haven't seen a problem. I, I'm well aware that they were bought by Schneider, of course, uh, but uh, but I haven't seen a problem with them since then. However, let's go. Uh, Bradley says the smart up series targeted for servers are still OK, but uh, he says I don't like their lesser models. Um, he says he recommends cyber power systems, AVR products. As you mentioned, brownouts can be worse than surges. The AVR or automatic voltage regulation circuit can boost the supplied voltage rather than using the battery, which will shorten its usable life. 
I usually go with the intelligent LCD series so you can see what the load on the battery is. Engineering principals and UPS vendors say you should run the unit at 50% load to get the stated runtime. So I tend to suggest fairly beefy units for a few reasons your Mac Geek Gab did not cover. For starters, the Apple supplied power supply for a given Mac is a steady state value. When the computer powers up or wakes up, there is a surge power drain that exceeds this value. Hook up an amp, amp meter to uh, a power strip and try it for yourself with John's caveats uh, included. Uh, he says the classic case is a power Mac G5 or Mac Pro that would lose power when it wakes up during a power event, trips the too small UPS and the UPS shuts off to protect itself and kills the Mac powering down suddenly, which could very well corrupt the internal or external hard drive. Uh he says, uh, speaking of math, well, at, at its face value, it's usually the part of the part number and written right on the face of the UPS. The manufacturer's website also gives the max capacity of watts of AC power. You certainly want to add up the power requirements of everything plugged in to the outlets. Now, let's not, for, not forget to include desktop class powered hard drives, which we must keep powered during brief outages, lest they unmount and corrupt. Uh, he says, when you're selecting a UPS, you may see information about the output wave waveform being a simulated sine wave for most units, but there are more expensive power factor controller, pure sine wave outputs. Um, you may ask if Apple uses power supplies that use FPC, uh, or PFC power factor controller. They won't tell you. He says, I'll tell you, you don't have to waste your money for a Mac system. These types are not required. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and he goes on to talk about the surge suppression function uh, in a UPS. And he seems to think that uh, the surge suppressors that you get in a UPS are worse than the surge suppressors that you might get from just a standalone surge suppressor. So thank you very much for this, Bradley. Very good stuff. I like the, uh, I like the geeky thoughts. It's good. Any geeky thoughts before we, uh, before we move on, we have two questions about UPSs as well, which we're going to go through here, John, in a second, but any, uh, any thoughts? No, let's keep on trucking the question. All right, sweet. Anthony writes, he says, uh, I just replaced my old backups uh, with back UPS, which is a, a model series of the APC stuff with the APC pro 1300, um, which as Bradley mentioned is their pro series. Uh, he says, I love it. I have it connected to my 2011 iMac and two external hard drives. Also my Xbox one Xbox one and it's external hard drive and my Elgato Thunderbolt dock. When it comes to setting the sensitivity settings, I changed it from medium, which was the default for me. He says to high, which is sensitive to any minor fluctuations in voltage or waveform. Uh, would it be correct to leave it at the high setting? So this is interesting. Yeah, you can, um, the smart ups line from, uh, from APC allows you to set this stuff. And although, uh, Anthony suggested that his was set to medium by default, which of course I believe APC has a, uh, a knowledge base article that talks about this. And it says that high is what should be the default. Um, but there is high, medium and low, and essentially it sets how, quickly the device is going to be triggered by a power event. So in general, having it set to high is good. However, if you are say running on generated power, which might be a little less um, pure, a little less clean, they say set it to low so that the unit isn't constantly complaining and jumping back and forth 
uh, while on uh, while on generated power. And I've experienced that here when I've had to run on a generator. My UPS units that don't have a sensitivity setting uh, go nuts. I effectively can't use them on generator power. But uh, but the ones that do, I do have a, a smart ups here. And when I set that to, you know, be be less hypersensitive in low mode, then it's fine and everything's good. It's just not it's just not jumping around much. So sensitivity setting uh, matters. High is a good default. Go from uh, go from there. Crazy, right, John? It is. Yeah, I had something similar. I have one of these power strips that I no longer use the feature of. Um, it would switch off depending on what voltage it thought was being drawn from primary devices that would then su- shut off um, mm. secondary devices. And there's some, they did something different in the power supply in the 2014 mini versus the one I had before, because this thing was freaking out. It was just on, off, on, off, on, off. It was just way too. And I even tried, they do have a sensitivity adjustment. So, um, yeah. so I guess the answer is it's a, it's a good feature to have because yeah, like you said, uh, you, your power will have different characteristics depending where you live, you know, yeah. time of year. I would think, you know, especially in the, in the summer when people are turning their ACs on and off and stuff like that, you may have more fluctuations as well because they're trying yeah. to manage that. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. They're definitely possibly true. Yep. Cool. All right. And then probably the most valuable of, uh, of these, at least in terms of what's valuable to you folks, Karsten uh, asked, and uh, and one of you answered before Karsten even asked. He said, uh, listening to all this information uh, was truly great. And then it dawned on me. I have three Eero mesh units and only the main Eero is connected to a UPS. This means that during a power outage, my wireless network will be weakened because the other two units will lose power. My next question is, can anyone recommend a uh, super small UPS, which only needs to power an Eero unit, maybe, and another little switch, something very, very small. And we had other people asking about this for, say, Sonos units or things that, that certainly you want to protect, but don't need gobs and gobs of power. Well, listener Clayton in our Facebook group found something, and it's 30 bucks U.S., for this little thing at Amazon. Well, actually it's up now. It was $30. Now it's 47. So keep an eye on it. It might go back down, but um, it's the APC BGE 70, uh, which has three outlets on it and, uh, and just enough power to, to run kind of your, your small stuff. So it's $17 more expensive than it was when I prepped this show the other day, but, uh, but keep an eye on it. We'll put a link to, to this in the, in the show notes so that, uh, so that everybody can keep an eye on it. So it's good stuff because, uh, because, Hey, you know, you need, you need something like that. It's good. Right, John. Right. Right. You want to take us, John, now that we can go to questions, we finally made it through all the tips and follow up and all that stuff, but it was valuable and good. Uh, you want to take us to Nick, John. Nick presented a very challenging, uh, well, something that I had to put my thinking cap on and actually had to do a little bit of programming. Huh? Fun. And let's start off here because I don't think his uh, issue is unique. So Nick says, I have a question regarding setting the SSID priorities in Mac OS and iOS devices also since iCloud. I have a work laptop, MacBook Pro early 2015 running 10.12.4 that is also signed into my iCloud account. So it shares SSID priority 
with all of my other devices. Problem is, I have a Meraki device. I think it's Meraki is how Meraki pronounce it. Yep. And yeah, I think cor- it's a Cisco corporate grade, company. Corporate grade router setup. Yeah, and I think they're part of Cisco or Cisco acquired them. I think that's right. right. Yeah. Uh, device. So basically, it's a it's a wireless VPN, I think, is, is uh, in this case. Okay, yeah, right. That would make sense. Yep. Okay. Um, so he has this device at home from work, so it broadcasts the corporate SSIDs. And of course, I have my personal SSIDs at home also. At work, this works fine. When working from home, the MacBook Pro tends to want to go to my home SSID when it wakes from sleep. Then I have to force it over to my corporate SSID. If I set the corporate SSID at the top of the list, this, of course, propagates to my other devices, causing them to want to join that SSID. I played with locations and network and system preferences, but that doesn't seem to do anything. Any easy way for me to tell my MacBook Pro to join the corporate SSID above and beyond anything else while not affecting my other Apple devices, short of disconnecting my corporate MacBook Pro from iCloud. I'm open to running a utility to force the behavior. All right. Me on a learning journey, and boy, this was cool. So, so clearly he wants to keep uh, his network priority um, the way it is, with the home at the top. Right. Um, and as he pointed out, that's not a solution. Um, so the one thing is, I mean, you could manually select it, but that's not very geeky. Well, and also, at, at some point, manually selecting it will, I think, it won't that change your network priority list? No, I guess not. I guess uh, it won't. It, it will from your iPhone at times, I've found. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so that's not a solution either. Right. So then I was starting to think, Dave, believe it or not, how to do this programmatically. And I think, well, actually, no, I did get him there because I okay. got me there. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So first what I did is I searched far and wide to see if there's a way from the terminal to uh, select your Wi-Fi network. And you know what? There is, Dave. There's a handy dandy command. And if you type it from, if you go in the terminal and type it, you'll see all the options here. Sure. And it's called Network Setup. And it lets you do all sorts of things with both your wired and your wireless network. And there's a particular invocation of it. And uh, we'll link to an article where I do this because, uh, you know, especially when you're typing stuff in here, if you get one character wrong, it it won't work. Um, But there's a command called Network Setup. And then they have one option called Set Airport Network. Now, it doesn't have to be an airport, but that's just the name of the command here. So the format of the command is network setup space dash set airport network space, then the name of the interface. Um, And it's probably going to be EN1. It may be something else. Um, If you type in IF config, you can see the list of all your devices. And the one that's listed as active when you have Wi-Fi selected is going to be the interface. But it's almost always EN1, right? Um, at least in my experience. Not it could be EN0 yeah. or it could be called airport. It could on be a, called a few different things. On a machine that doesn't have Ethernet, um, EN0 is going to be your Wi-Fi adapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, so you got to figure out what that is. But you can do that just with the drop down and uh, it, it, it go to the option. Click on the airport drop down in your you know menu items in the bar there. I don't know why I'm having trouble speaking now. But uh, it'll tell you your interface name, and it'll be en something, and uh, and so just use that. Yeah. Oh 
Yeah, look at that. Yeah. Okay, right there. Interface name EN1. Okay, thanks. Yeah, on your machine EN1. On my like on my MacBook Air, which doesn't have its own built-in motherboard-based Ethernet adapter, <clears throat> the wireless interface is EN0 because zero is always the first one. Yep. Um, so then, after that, you put in single quotes. Um, well, you don't have to walk them through it because the beauty is you wrote an article. Well, I wrote an article. Yeah. So you then put your Wi-Fi network and then optionally a password, which I hope you have this passworded. Right. Um, so that's the command. If you type it from the terminal, the nice thing is that you can take a terminal command and make it into a little pro, an application by starting up script editor, which is the thing that lets you make Apple scripts. And as a general tip, if you put do space shell space script and then put in double quotes whatever you want to run from the terminal that's the way to make an application out of something you otherwise would have to type into the terminal and you've got that right in this article you put up on tmo the other day so this is awesome yep. sweet and then the final thing is well what do i use and you actually gave me some good advice here the thing is how do i run um something like this when i want to and i found a few different options Going through them quickly, I found a program called Scenario, and it's uh, it's basically a purpose in life. Uh, it's five bucks. It's in the App Store, and it says uh, this is something that will run an Apple script at certain times. So that sounds cool. Huh. Another one that you brought to my attention, Dave, um, though maybe unwieldy, I haven't used it in a while, um, Control Plane, which uh, does what is known as context-sensitive computing. That may be another thing. Now, you're going to have to come up with the conditions under which you'd want to run this. Yeah, what, so, so what is the condition that he wants to choose this? Right. I mean, it could be the time of day. It could oh, be yeah. what is the IP address that I get. So, you know, when you're on the corporate network, you get an IP address. Of, um, you would have to get creative with that. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think about... Um, he has a laptop. I'm trying to figure out what, what this would be because you'd need this for any of these things, right? So uh, broadcast at work. This is fine at home. MacBook Pro wants to go to my home SSID when it wakes from sleep, and then I have to force it to my corporate SSID. If I set it at the top of the list, this propagates to all my other devices. Oh, right. So really what he'd want to do is he could he could do this with control plane, but he could also do it with... Um, with keyboard maestro, because again, as we mentioned triggers, right. And one of the triggers is this wireless network. So he could say this wireless network with exact name and put in his home wireless network and say is connected because if it's connected to his home network, he wants it to jump over to this other one. Now that may prove a little bit too much for him because there might be a time when he wants to connect to his home network and can't because every time he connects keyboard maestro says aha trigger and goes and runs the thing and changes him to back to the work network but but if he wants his macbook pro to be on his work network work network all the time then that would be the way to do it to say this wireless network with exact name is connected and let that be the trigger when he's connected to his home network boom jump or you know put in the work network name and choose is disconnected i think it would do this the same thing you know but um yeah anyway yeah, keyboard maestro, man. Uh, you know, I as you know, I've been a control plane fan for years and years and years. But um, it, it's a little convoluted. It's one of those things that's not intuitive. You have to learn how it wants you to think, as opposed to it just doing things in a way that you already think about. And uh, 
And keyboard maestro to me is a little more intuitive. I just need to, I've learned control plane. So I've learned how to think like it, which is why when you mentioned this to me a couple of weeks ago, I was like, Oh dude, control plane. That's it's super easy. And it's way more flexible than, than keyboard maestro even is at this point in time. Uh, but I think with this, you probably get away with it with keyboard maestro and keep it straight. The cool part about keyboard maestro, not for Nick, but uh, for many of us is that you can sync your macros uh, across multiple computers. So if you need to do things like mounting network drives when you're home and all of that, you can sync those macros and, uh, and have them right there. The, uh, the only thing I'll, one thing I'll add is you can actually tell it not to use a group of macros on any given computer. So if you've got five computers that your macros are synced, you can turn off, turn them off, excuse me, on one. Uh, if you don't want that particular machine to, to, to run them, even though it's all right there. But anyway, fun stuff, right? Yeah. And then this lastly, great, I found something which I've never used and I may want to check this out, but it's a, it's a program called power manager. It's actually a company based in the UK because their URL has a dot UK at the end. Uh-huh. And uh, one of the things that it claims it can do is run a script when you wake your machine, but it does a boatload huh? of other things. And it's also 50 bucks, but it has a trial. So you may want to try that as well to see if that would be able to manage this to your satisfaction. I'll throw keyboard maestro back in there. Cause it can do that too. Oh yeah. 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 I really feel like what keyboard maestro is like 36 bucks, I think. Right. Yep. And, uh, man, it is the future of scripting on the Mac. I, I feel like, okay. well, I mean, you know, who knows what's going on with, with Apple script and automator now. So, uh, keyboard maestros. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, yeah. You may want to toss in a comment to the article there. Making that. Okay. Suggestion. Yeah. 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 All right. I will. I will do that. Sounds good. Yeah. Cause yeah. we already got, well, actually no, not this article, but another article I did. We already had like two people say, Oh, here's a different way of doing. Yeah. This. Right. Oh, I love that. that. Yep. It's good. All right. Good. Uh, good. A, a good challenge and a, and a way to t- bring out the program in me once again. <laughs> yeah. That's fun, man. I'm glad. That's good. All right. Um, this might fall into the category of a geek challenge. In fact, it, it certainly is at this point, kind of, although I, we might have one answer already. But uh, but listener Ed writes and asks, he says, um, I've been trying to help my daughter in another state with her college calculus course, and I've been using messages to control her screen from my computer. But what would be really helpful in explaining how to do the problems would be a whiteboard app of sorts where I could freely draw on a whiteboard on my computer and she could see what I'm drawing on her side. Do you know of anything that would fit the bill here? Well, Ed, um, I don't. But one of our listeners, I I put this out. I think I put this one on Twitter. And uh, one of our listeners immediately replied that join.me has a built-in whiteboard solution. Uh, Now, there's a caveat. There's two caveats. One of them is not a big deal for you. The first caveat is that free join.me accounts are limited to 10 active whiteboards at a time for what you're doing here. That's totally fine. You probably only need one and then you just wipe it clean and, and, you know, keep working on that same one. Uh, So that's not going to be an issue. What might be an issue is that the whiteboard portion of join.me is only writable from an iPad or maybe an iPhone, but definitely not from your Mac. So if you've got an iPad and you can do that kind of all at once, you can have everything joined to the same conference and you're good to go. Uh, and join.me does the screen sharing. And also um, I think it, it does like the whole audio chat and everything. So you're, you know, you can have the whole conversation right there. 
very, very handy. As long as you have an iPad that you can control the uh, whiteboard itself from, you might even find that easier than doing it on your Mac. But, uh, but I share that. But if there's anything else, I would love to know. Pilot Pete is not sitting next to me, but it's like you're here, Pete, because he's in the chat room and he says Zoom and there's a trial. Uh, so I don't know what the URL is for Zoom, but uh, I know Pete. And so he will share it and then we will put that in the show notes. So that's uh, that's another way of doing it. Do you know of anything, John? Um, could you use notes? Does that operate in real time or it sounds like we want a real time, you know, yeah. we're, we both, we're both sharing a canvas. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. I don't, th- and notes won't do it in real time. I mean, it'll do syncing back and forth, but not, not in a productive way for, for this, I think, but that's interesting. Yeah. Another thought, which I use, and I think you use also, and a lot of people use for remote support, um, although it's not really meant for this, but a uh, team viewer will let you do remote scheme remote support yeah but it does, i don't think it has a whiteboard in it no so you'd have to yeah be kind of fighting over the yeah so that's probably not yeah yeah that's no different sharing. than what he's doing now with you know with iMessage yeah. screen sharing yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, and then kiwi graham in the uh in the chat room is asking about google docs and i i had the same thought when this question first came in but i don't i don't know of anything um that would that would do it so uh, maybe, but Pete says it's zoom.us. So that's now in the, uh, in the show notes too. All right. Another geek challenge that uh, actually resulted in a pretty good Facebook discussion on our Facebook group at, uh, at MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook was from listener Richard, who, uh, who asked, he said, any suggestions for a good iTunes cleaner, missing artwork, dupes, etc., etc." I'm finding tons of bloat and crapware out there uh, around this type of utility. Do you have anything that you would recommend? So this is a good question. The, the answer used to be a piece of software called TuneUp and, uh, and, and at TuneUpMedia.com. But if you go there, you'll see that they are in the what I'll call preparation stages of, of launching what they're calling TuneUp Relaunch. Uh, really what they're going through well, they may very well be going through that, uh, you know, and, and building a new piece of software or whatever it is they need to do. But um, but I also know they went through a massive corporate change. I think the entire company was sold or at least many of the assets and or, or there was a, a, a regime change there or something that really kind of took things uh, through things for a loop. So um, so if they come back, I, I would say they're worth reevaluating, but it's going to be a different team with a different product as far as i know so just you know i think the brand name stays the same take a look at what they come up with it might be might very well be excellent uh but it's worth kind of coming in with a fresh fresh set of eyes on that once once they do come around um as far as other options what's that go yeah and it's actually on my machine and it actually, at a show that we went to in the past, Dave, they actually gave us a copy, though they've uh, advanced it a few versions. And now, uh, I don't know, maybe they'll throw us a, another code. Sure. But um, Tidy Up from Hyperbolic Software. Okay. And actually, when I just ran it, they just came out with a new version just, just a few days ago, or maybe a month ago. So they're maintaining it. It's current. Uh, www.hyperbolicsoftware.com. Is this for iTunes, though? 
Yes. Okay. Well, it's for dealing with, uh, so the one feature that it advertises uh, on doing is dealing with duplicates in a number of different ways. Okay, but not metadata or anything like that, right? Uh, you know, I mean, they show. All right, so th so they have the, the search services here, and I'm looking at one here. So music. No, I think they do. So, th so they have a music category where they'll do duplicates or similar songs. They'll identify those iTunes music duplicate or similar and then music by tag they also so it looks like they have a number of options here for cleaning up your music library and they explicitly include iTunes uh, an iTunes category and just a general music category but hey oh and then they have an advanced mode oh my gosh okay oh this this looks like it can be getting crazy okay uh it looks like they have a trial uh and it sounds like you're probably checking it out as we speak here. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So um, certainly worth considering, and it's a, it's a current product. So. Huh. Cool. So let me do some of what you need to, to clean it up here. Sure. Um, I have seen one, uh, Clean My Mac does have an iTunes junk feature, but it's, okay. uh, it says it'll clean unused iOS data and detect broken downloads. So that's probably not... I mean, it's not bad, but sure. uh, I, I wouldn't say that Clean My Mac is the primary tool you should use for cleaning up your iTunes. Right, right. So there Still were a nice couple. Tool. There were a couple mentioned in this Facebook thread, um, and I will just go in order that they were mentioned. Uh, Paul suggested something called Metadatix from uh, from Mark Five Apps, MarkVApps.com. And uh, I don't know anything about it, but uh, but he says it's always been his go to app and it's an advanced audio metadata editor for Mac OS 10. So so there's that one. And we'll certainly put that in the uh, in the show notes. And then uh, next up was Tidy Music by Wondershare. And so we'll put that in uh, in the show notes. I don't know anything about that one. Never even heard of it. Um, Cover Scout uh, was what listener Michael suggested. And so we've got that one to consider. And then uh, one that I knew about, and we actually mentioned on the show, I think five years ago, maybe more, but, uh, but I had completely forgotten about is power tunes from fat cat software. And uh, we love the stuff from fat cat software for, uh, for photos and for iPhoto. So, uh, so power tunes, it looks like it's built to do this. I actually sent a note to Brian over at fat cat software, just to kind of confirm that, that this is still an active product for them. I mean, it says it's Mac OS Sierra compatible. And also uh, there was an update as recently as November. So it's, it's certainly not a dead product. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll certainly follow up when I hear back from, from that. And then uh and then we've got one in the chat room from uh, Dave Ginsburg called uh, Dupin by Douglas Adams. Now, Doug Adams is, uh, people probably know him from Doug'sScripts.com. And Dupin will find duplicate tracks, but I think that's about it. But it might do more. I can't tell. So we'll put that out there too. But if you've got something that you use that we haven't mentioned, by all means, please let us know. <laughs> Right, John? Why not? Okay, good. Fun. I like this stuff. I like these geek challenges. I like it when they happen in real time, too. It's fun. 
a little crazy, but, uh, but chaos. fun. It's chaos. Yeah. While we're talking about fun little, uh, fun little apps that do great little things, listener David asks, he says, uh, I'm trying to back up my iPhone to an external hard drive. I called Apple and they said, I cannot do this. Were they sorely mistaken or am I? Well, the answer is uh, that you officially cannot do that in that there's no place in iTunes to change the backup location. However, you can absolutely do it. And I've been doing it for years. Now, the way I originally did it was uh, I created a sim link from the uh, it's your where your backups will be stored at your home folder, library, mobile sync backups. That's where backups are stored. So what I did was I sim linked that I removed that backups folder. I created another folder on my external drive. And then I sim linked that from the, uh, from the, 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 from the backups location on, in my home folder off to this thing. So anything it tried to save it in backups on my home folder was automatically just shuttled over and it worked great. Um, and we've got a cool utility coming up that'll teach you how to do sim links. So, um, but you don't have to worry about that because iMazing will do this for you. If you go into iMazing preferences, backups, default backup location, you can just set it here and it goes in and changes whatever P list needs to be changed. And then you're good to go. So that's, uh, that's probably the best way to do it so that you're not messing with sim links and, and having to deal with all that stuff. So, so it is doable. What do you think, John? I got a question for you. Yeah, man. I thought I knew how to do this. All right. So, so as far as device backups, how do you create a newer, how do you maintain, you see the question I'm trying to ask here? I do. How do you, how do you, how do you save a, a backup uh, in perpetuity while still backing up the same device in the future? Uh, almost like versioning. So how do I maintain? Yeah. So right now I have one that was made on three two seventeen. Right. Okay, that's great. How do I keep that but make a newer one? Yeah. Right. So so we're you're seeing this um, in uh, in iTunes in preferences in devices. You're seeing a list yes. of all your devices. Okay. So if you are in that list and you right click on the backup that you want to preserve and choose archive. It will change the name there of that backup okay. and it will add today's date or maybe the date it was backed up um, on it. But, but at, at that point, it will no longer change that backup. And the next time you backup, it's going to do a full backup from start to finish. So it'll take, it'll take a little longer because it's starting from scratch. But this is a great way to, A, like you said, create a, a versioning of your backups. Uh, but also, if you happen to have a backup that you think is corrupt or, or isn't working, you don't have to delete it to to try a new backup. You can just do it that way. And um, back in 2013, I actually wrote this up at TMO. So I'll put the, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. It's good stuff, right? I think so. And actually I think I kind of subconsciously led us into the next question, which I think. Yeah, we should, we can end with that. Sure. Uh, we're running out of time, but let's see if we can do this quick. Uh, Andrew writes, he said, what software would you recommend using to recover photos and video, which have been deleted from an iPhone? Um, as always, you know, when you hit the limits of iTunes, I always think I'm amazing, right? Because it, it sort of is the extension to that. 
But I don't think they do any actual data recovery. So I don't think it's the right thing to recommend. Uh, in fact, I think it's it's the wrong thing to recommend here. Um, if your data, if your photos and videos were in iCloud with your iCloud photo library uh, and you deleted them from your phone, you still have 30 days to go to the iCloud website and recover from there. That will definitely, right. right? It's all, that's always there. Even if it's not appearing on any of your devices, if you've deleted it, it is in, uh, it is on the website for up to 30, for 30 days, for at least 30 days. It might actually last a little longer than that, but, but they guarantee 30 days. Um, as far as getting data off the iPhone itself, I don't, I've never, I don't have anything that I've used that I can just say, yes, I recommend this. I did some Google searching and came up with something called Enigma recovery that it seems like is the real deal as opposed to one of these scam products that's out there. But I honestly don't know. Do you, John? Yeah, I've every now and then I'll search for things that claim to be able to recover deleted data from my devices. And yeah. I, I uh, none of them look to be from establishments that yeah. I, I would trust personally. that's the problem i'm not going to put a link to this enigma data recovery thing in our show notes i, I certainly don't mm. don't i don't know anything about it so i can't even say i mean if it was one of you folks that suggested it then i'd be like yeah all right let's go so we'll we'll certainly leave that one as a uh as a geek challenge and um you, you know we'll 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 get there we'll, we'll find a way because i know there's a way i know people have done it i just don't know what tools people have used um, I feel like, uh, what, what is it like ProSoft? Does ProSoft have something? I don't think they do, but they seem like the company that would, you know, that would do something like that. I mean, they have something that'll recover. I don't think it's for iOS though. They'll recover no. deleted pictures. Right. And right. data rescue also, but that's, that's Mac based. I, I think iOS is a, it's more of a challenge because I think it's. Yeah, you're not allowed to go certain places in iOS where you are on the uh, right on the Mac. Right, right. And right. the other thing is kind of what I was suggesting is by versioning your iTunes backups um, or Time Machine, going to a past uh, iTunes backup of the device and restoring from that. I don't know. Yeah, but that do that doesn't have your pictures, right? <laughs> Uh, last I had to do this, it, it may have changed, but last I had to do this, um, I thought the camera roll was stored in there along with some other things. Uh, you might, maybe, I mean, once you start using iCloud photo library, no, but. Oh, it, right, right. Right. But maybe, yeah, you might be right. Maybe, maybe without that, it still is stored there. Yeah. I yeah. remember in the, uh, yes, yeah, so if you have an older backup restore from that and you may be able to retrieve the stuff that was stored on the device at that point. In time. Yep. 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 I don't know. But I do know one thing, John. Mm -hmm. It's time. But we got to go. It's time to bring the band so they don't freeze. Yeah, man. I don't even know what it is. I don't even want to look at what it is outside. It's crazy out there. Yeah. Well, we told you about our Facebook group, but uh, what we didn't tell you about was our premium offering. If you go to MacGeekGab.com slash premium, you can learn all about how you can support us directly here. We really appreciate your support. We frankly um, couldn't do this show without uh, without your support. It's it's a huge portion of uh, of 
of you know how we make this show happen and how we how we get paid for what we do so that we can spend the time doing this as opposed to having to do other things even though we all do other things every everybody's got a million part-time jobs these days and that's kind of just how it works and that's a good thing but uh but your premium support is a huge part of that um so we'd really appreciate it if you are able to uh and you are interested natgeekgab.com slash premium tells you all about it and uh and if you can't, that's okay too. We obviously, you know, simply having you as a listener is another huge part of that uh, because we do have sponsors for the show that uh, that kind of fill in that other part of the gap that uh, that you folks, uh, you know, you folks sort of get us to one point and the sponsors get us uh, sort of the rest of the way down the road. But uh, but it, it's absolutely you folks first and foremost. So MacGeekUp.com slash premium. I can't speak enough about how much we appreciate it and frankly, how much we rely on it. So, uh, please check that out if you've got uh, if you've got any interest and in, and in, in can afford to help us. We we love it. Uh, but I do want to let you know how to contact us. Premium listeners can do that at premium at macgeekgab.com. You do get that as part of your uh, as part of our way of saying thanks for helping us out, and we definitely prioritize that stuff. Although now this week I'm finally caught up on everything. Didn't get through it all while I was on vacation, but I did get through the premium stuff as soon as I got back. Uh, the other ways they can contact us, though, everybody else that's not a premium listener, feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I, I think I heard you right and that you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Oh, I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. All right. That's, uh, that's how I roll, John. That's, that's kind of how that works. Also, you can call us 206. Sorry, <laughs> not 206. <Oops. laughs> Old habits die hard. 224-888-GEEK, which John is? And this has not changed. 4335. So true. Uh, our thanks to the folks at Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com, for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Uh, without them, this would cost us a whole lot more to do, and they provide a great service. Really, really good stuff. If you need a CDN for anything, not just podcast hosting, but really anything, check those guys out. They're, they're good people with a great, great service. We haven't had any trouble with it in 10-plus years. It's hmm. really amazing. Does that stand for Content Distribution Network? It does. Yeah. 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 It puts, your, puts our content all over the planet. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then, of course, our sponsors. GoDaddy at uh, GoDaddy.com, where coupon code MGG30 saves you 30 bucks. 30%, not just 30 bucks. It might save you 30 bucks, but it's 30%. Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG. Smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com. Barebones Software at barebones.com. And of course, Blue Apron at blueapron.com slash MGG. It's tasty. Have a fantastic week, folks. John, do you have anything uh, anything to add here? Yeah, well, with the weather we got here, Dave, um, I'd say throw a log on the fire, warm things up, because otherwise you're going to freeze and you will get caught. Made up.